Welcome to Faculty Voices. Emiliana Vegas is a professor of practice at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Her research and practice focus on improving educational opportunity in developing countries. Welcome, Emiliana. Thank you, June. I was so fascinated reading through the proliferation of the things that you have read and researched and written about concerning the COVID-19 and the disruption to the global education system, about accrediting people through technology and about the role of teachers. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about all of that. (laughs) Okay. As you said in one of your excellent research articles, COVID-19 caused significant eruption to the global education system. And that early studies suggest significant learning loss in a few countries. But you pointed out there are also outliers, countries that manage to limit the amount of loss. So could you tell us about the extent that COVID-19 led to student learning losses across Latin America, and then some examples of best practices that actually worked. Yeah, so we have been sort of trying to document empirically the extent of the impact of the school closures due to the pandemic on student learning opportunities. The more we get data on the learning losses, the more we realize that they have affected primarily the students who were already behind. So within and across countries, those countries that are already had sort of low learning levels tended to also have longer school closures and their students on average are also falling farther and farther behind. And then within countries, you find that students who were more advantaged by virtue of attending higher quality schools, having better access to internet and digital technologies and devices, although they too suffered learning losses. So we've learned that there's really no perfect substitute for in-person schooling. But we also learned that those who were in the same system and more disadvantaged suffered even greater losses or in the same country. And in Latin America in particular, we've seen that as a region, it was one of the regions that had the longest periods of school closures in the world. And although we don't have a lot of data from many countries yet, We are seeing in countries like Colombia, like Uruguay, that there have been sort of learning losses. And again, that those have been greater for students coming from low-income households. You asked also about best practices. We learned a lot about sort of the pandemic. And if we go back to to March 2020, when all the schools around the world closed pretty much, you know, we were facing a world where we didn't have a vaccine. We really didn't understand how this disease was transmitting. So we were relying a lot on the health experts and what they were learning. And I think as a worldwide community, they did an incredible job, obviously, of learning on the go and producing vaccines. And so today we're in a very different state. But I still think that 
some countries, for example, Finland, Denmark, from the get-go said, children have a right to learn that is sacred. And we are going to weigh the benefits and costs of in-person schooling vis-a-vis the cost of students missing out on learning. And for example, some schools were never closed. Schools in these countries that served students from frontline workers who were not going to be able to be at home or students with severe disabilities that weren't able to get access to kind of learning opportunities at home. Those remained open with very strict health protocols. And then also these systems tended to have you know, shorter periods of when schools were closed. They really prioritized the in-person schooling. They worked very closely with their health authorities. And I would say the the third factor that really distinguishes the countries that were able to reopen early versus countries that, that remain closed is that the issue of whether schools should be prioritized was not was not in question. It was very widely accepted that schools serve a role not only to provide you know educational opportunity to students, but also a host of other services that we've now discovered are so important for children to thrive. For example, in a lot of schools in our region, as well as around the world, schools are where kids get a lot of services, health services, nutrition. And for the poorest of children, it might be the only place they get a nutritious meal per day. And so children and youth in, in our region not just missed out on, on kind of learning. And, and we, are, we can see that that impact has been great and will have lasting impacts in their lives in the future. But they importantly lost on all sorts of other services that are important for their health and and emotional well-being. It's too early to see what's going to be the long-term impact of that. But I think there's a consensus that we have to focus on it and, and really implement programs to try and remediate the damage that has been done and to bring students back and to provide them with catch up learning opportunities, as well as the health and social protection services that they need to kind of recover. One of the studies mentioned Paraguay as an example of how less technologically sophisticated approaches can also help improve learning outcomes, especially when the business as usual instruction is of low quality. Could you talk about that? Yes, well, in Paraguay and in a lot of Latin America, we had a long history of having effective radio instruction. Even in the past, it was one way in the 60s and 70s in which governments kind of expanded access to schooling. So it was interesting, as you say, like recognizing that households in our region don't have access to internet and devices, the majority of them. The government pivoted to kind of low cost, but very accessible technology to provide learning opportunities to students through the radio and through providing written materials to households to follow the lessons. It's early to tell how much this has ameliorated the impact of the learning loss, but you know we did see incredible efforts across the region from governments, but also from individual teachers who were willing to kind of risk their own like health and safety to you know, visit students and provide them with materials when they were unable to access online, for example, materials in Chile. There are many reports of of that having happened. Similarly, there were some reporting of parents just doing incredible efforts to try and keep their kids on track. I recall a 
a newspaper article from Venezuela, for example, where the school had posted the homework in a poster outside the school building and parents going in person to kind of take note to bring that home to their students or their children. And it's just remarkable, I think, how people use their ingenuity in very low resourced environments, both from the school side as well as from the family side to try and continue the effort. But I think it would have been so terrible if the schools hadn't been closed as long as they were. I think the fact that it just lasted so long makes these efforts and the possibility of their kind of yielding some fruit very hard to really materialize because they're difficult to sustain. And over time, over almost two years in many countries that schools were closed. And also the other things that were going on that were also affecting families. What do you mean by the other things that are going on that are also affecting families? Well, for one, the pandemic itself, many people getting sick, many people dying, the socio-emotional as well as the impact that might have on a family in terms of their economic well-being, their socio-emotional well-being. So we all experienced family members or friends who got ill and many of us also who passed away. So I think that's one real told that that families were also and teachers you know living with while they were trying to provide learning opportunities and kind of some measure of life other things you know having to to remain at home for many families who have multi-generational members in a household that makes it very difficult for students to have even a physical space to be able to engage in the learning opportunities that they may have access to if we go back to that time it was just so stressful right we didn't have any sense of when this might end and when we might be able to resume some sort of normalcy life so i think all these factors it's stressors. There's a lot of evidence that stress also relates to learning. And so when you add them all up, it was really a picture that was that makes it very difficult for students to learn even under sort of the best conditions, as we've seen in, in sort of high income countries like the United States, even the students who had access to online learning, who connected, who had devices, who had internet, they too suffered learning losses. Reading through your studies, it seems to me that there's been a lot of thinking about the role of technology in schools and to what degree it's effective going beyond the context of the pandemic. What did you learn? Well, in Latin America, we have experimented a lot with providing devices to students one-to-one. Countries like Uruguay have, Uruguay has the longest standing program and probably I would say the best deployed, but Peru, you know, lots of countries, Dominican Republic have implemented these one laptop per child programs. And I think the distinguishing factor of those that make a difference or move the needle on learning versus those that are just like really a total waste of money and do not produce any learning is when they're accompanied by a host of decisions around why you're providing a laptop, including how is it going to change instruction? How are you going to work with teachers so that they can use the devices effectively in classrooms? And then to what extent do you have the support services? Do you have access to internet and electricity? In many of the countries, 
Honduras is a great example where the laptops were deployed, but schools didn't have the infrastructure to keep them powered, for example. I used to be very, I would say, skeptical of the decisions of governments to provide laptops. I think the pandemic showed us that, you know, it's a necessary but not sufficient <laughs> condition. So it is, I think technology has a great promise to transform many aspects of education. It, it can help teachers be more effective personalizing instruction. And we know that students have different levels of mastery of material, different styles of learning, and that a teacher faced with 30, 40, 50 students, which is sort of the average class size in our countries, no matter how excellent he or she may be, they're just unable to provide the type of individualized instruction that students need to thrive. So technology can really aid in that way. It can also help both teachers and students access really high quality information and material and lessons and learn that, you know, when students have observed, let's say, a high quality presentation on a topic, and then they come to class prepared to discuss it and the teacher can guide that discussion, it really can be more productive. So there is a lot of things that technology can accelerate learning. However, it's not how it's usually being implemented in our region. And so I think it's still to, to be seen. I hope that the investments in sort of digitalization, connectivity, and devices will continue but accompanied with a real educational strategy around how are we going to transform schooling? Because, you know, the same method of an adult teaching all students the same material at the same pace in the same time just has not shown to be effective anywhere in the world. And so technologists are the best ally to, to remediate that or to, to transform that. But it's been so far used in a very traditional way. It's so far been used in a very traditional way. I know it's a little bit early to ask this question, but do you know of any examples in Latin America where there has been success along the models that you suggest? I would say in Uruguay, there's been some success with, for example, expanding access to learning English recognizing that the capacity is not there so that there was no way that over time you could, you know, in, in, in a reasonable period of time, you could develop the, the proficient teachers to teach English well in the country. And so in partnership with uh, the British Council, the, the Plan Ceibal, which is their digital education program and, and really its system, and the, the ANEP, the National Administration of Public Education, they developed a way to have a teacher in the classroom who facilitates, but have a, a native English speaker from the Caribbean or from another country zoom in, let's say, and be able to provide the instruction for the students to hear. And there is some evidence that that has accelerated progress in sort of language proficiency in Uruguay. So, you know, filling gaps in sort of short terms in, in Uruguay also, there's very interesting efforts using the capacity, you know, the fact that now students have access to, to technology and, and all schools are connected to try to innovate in sort of building computer science education programs that are more accessible. You know, Uruguayan students have won a number of robotics competition, which is for a small country in our region, quite impressive worldwide. It's impressive what they've been able to do, but they've been at it for a really long time. 
That said, you know, Chile has also had enlaces uh, for a long time, a program of, you know, connectivity in schools uh, with deployment of devices, not one-to-one, but labs. And, you know, it wasn't there um, in terms of the offer online. And I think we always saw technology as a place where students would go um, in addition to school, um, separate from school. And I think that what we have learned and what kind of best practice suggests is that it's a complement to school and that we should embrace it and use it strategically um, to improve the learning opportunities of our children. We've talked about the loss in learning. I mean, how much is that due to kids dropping out of school? That's another reality that it's uh, that is terrible, particularly in our region. We already had uh, very high dropout rates in secondary school and between lower secondary and higher secondary. And with sort of the school closures, it's very likely and we're already seeing sort of more of that. Um, it's very hard to attract, you know, youth to come back to, to schools that were already not serving them well after they've been forced out for a year or two. We're also seeing in the region and in other developing regions increased adolescent pregnancy rates as a result of the pandemic. So yes, a lot of factors are sort of combining to um, create even more pressures for um, students to stay out of school. And it's going to be hard to bring them back to school. Um, and we, we, you know, we need to act quickly. You talked about the disparity between um, poor and underserved communities and those which were better off in terms of access to technology. But I'm curious, are we seeing a gender disparity in these learning losses? We've just concluded like an analysis um, in March of this year. So now two years after the pandemic, looking at all the um, sort of rigorous research that has been conducted worldwide. I did this with my uh, friend and, and co-author, co Harry Petrinas from the World Bank and, and our research assistant, Rowan Carter. Um, and what we found is no less gender disparities. Most of the disparities we see are by socioeconomic background of the student. That in, in many systems is correlated to other sort of racial and ethnicity variables, um, but we haven't really seen that girls or boys are have suffered greater learning losses yet. I guess that's good news. Yes, I suppose. In other regions of the world, you are seeing, like I was mentioning, um, a bigger impact on girls through sort of domestic violence and rape and adolescent pregnancies uh, that are not the result of violence necessarily, but just the fact that girls can, when they're out of school, they just, you know, can get into these kinds of situations. In other regions of the world, this is a very salient problem. Um, I hope that that's not the case in our region as much, but I don't think it's been as studied as in other regions of the world too. So that's very interesting. And you talk about all these people, uh, all these adolescents who are dropping out of school. Um, but one of the other things that you've written about is this whole issue, and I don't know if I'm using the right term, but these um, micro accreditation, I'm sure many of our listeners have seen ads from Google about how you can get a certificate um, or for other companies 
so what does this mean for youth and adults in low income companies and in marginalized communities within wealthy countries? Well, you know, I started getting interested in this topic when I was at the Inter-American Development Bank. We were we were very committed to sort of um, embracing technology for social good. And we were lucky enough that the bank was investing a lot in training its leadership and its staff in what's going on in the digital world. So we were learning about blockchain technology, et cetera. And we were, um, we were one of the first institutions to give uh, to start a program in the Caribbean countries to try and develop these um, sort of blockchain digital based um, micro credentials for youth in the Caribbean. And I think that the argument was that youth in the Caribbean are particularly males, but, but all youth, you know, live in small island nations for the most part that don't have a lot of economic opportunities. And so even if they access um, education, accessing like the skills they need and then a job would be hard. When you have um, a credential that you that's portable, that is uh, recognized, that certifies that you you mastered a certain skill that is uh, sought after by employers, then you can kind of the world is your uh, labor market, right? Um, and so fast forward to when I was at Brookings, I was very interested in, in, in learning more about this. And I learned that there were a lot of efforts happening in the United States and in European countries and in some Asian countries around how to um, improve the ability of different skills to be recognized both by uh, the different education institutions, as well as by the employers and for individuals to carry those skills. So as, as we all know, if we want to kind of certify that we got a degree, let's say here at Harvard, um, the degree tells something to the labor market, but the actual skills that we learned are not really explicit. So there's, as, as economists, we would call an information asymmetry between what the person really is able and knows what to do, what the employer knows about that, and 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 the employer takes a risk, and, the, and also the person takes a risk in, in taking an employment that they may or may not be best suited for. So the promise of these digital credentials is sort of improving, uh, reducing that asymmetry of information um, and improving the opportunities that youth, for example, in anywhere could learn skills that can provide them jobs, both in their own context, but also outside um, using digital um, credentialing and, and, and badging, sometimes it's called. Um, companies have it, but also the, the, the goal of these consortia of different institutions, both uh, governments, universities, um, and employers is that eventually we will have a concession and a set of standards that would mean that if you, um, you know, have a certain credential that it, it it reflects certain skills that everybody agrees are those skills and therefore you mastered those. Um, it's still, I would say, um, although there's been a lot of progress, I think it's a very challenging um, proposition, particularly in very decentralized systems like the United States, where um, each state has its own, you know, ideas of what are the skills and the, and the jobs. Each university acts differently. So, but in more 
um, let's say centralized or coordinated systems like the ones in Asia and Europe, it's it's advancing much quicker. Um, and I think in our region, uh, my one of the reasons I got interested in this, in learning more about this and, and in pushing the previous institution where I was working to really focus on um, ensuring that this is not something that continues to be developed only among high income countries and for um, you know, companies and individuals in high income settings, because I'm afraid that the need is greatest um, in low income countries where, where youth have fewer educational opportunities, have fewer labor market opportunities. And this could be a game changer in places like Latin America, but also Sub-Saharan Africa. And is it actually being used in Latin America and the Caribbean? Not to the extent, no, um, not, uh, I, I, don't think it's it's been successful in being widely used. I think there's still some pilots. And frankly, I think the pandemic sort of threw a curveball in anything else other than let's keep things working and try to reopen. And so the focus has been in more basic um, things. But I think that's always the trade-off in our region is that we always have an emergency, a, a, an economic crisis. I mean, we've never had sort of a pandemic and an economic crisis all at the same time. So that that's new, but you know, we we always had. And so the what's important and long-term always gets kind of left behind from the short-term immediate needs. And I, my work has focused on trying to revert that, but I can't say I've been super successful. <laughs> Do you see any country or any any particular region that shows signs of perhaps now that we're worming our way sort of out of the pandemic um, that shows particular interest? Certainly, Asia is very involved. If, if, if I can speak of in our region, I haven't. No. Um, in outside our region, Asia is moving very quickly. Um, countries like Indonesia, Thailand, uh, Singapore is one of the leaders in this, um, and also the European Union. But why? I, I know you're saying that we're always coping with emergencies and that seems to be a really good reason, yet there's been a lot of experiments, say, in areas like Bitcoins. Uh, what do you think are the big obstacles to this in Latin America? I think it requires in a lot of um, collaboration and investment in um, technology that is at the forefront. It also requires, you know, connectivity and high-speed connectivity uh, for it to work effectively. So there's some basic infrastructure needs on the technology side that uh, we still are struggling with as a region. Um, and then there's sort of the the sort of I think political and leadership needed to prioritize it um, amongst many other issues, right? And so, you know, a lot of the countries are facing with issues related to access to higher education. Um, and in our region, there's, uh, in, in many countries, higher education, people aspire to go to universities. Um, and those are very expensive and, and long-term investments that people make and governments make 
nevertheless, there are shorter, more cost-effective routes. And, and I, that's where I think this um, idea of digital credentials for skills, not only in the post-secondary education world, but even in, in, in secondary education, primary education, if we could develop ways of quickly certifying that a kid has mastered um, basic literacy, foundational numeracy, um, then they could have, you know, move across schools more easily. Um, similarly, you know, the, once you've mastered certain skills, uh, if you drop out or if you have to leave school for a period, you return, you're not held back. So it provides a lot of mobility and really efficiency gains uh, for individuals and for systems and economies. So I'm hoping that we, you know, I, I, that that was the purpose of, of what we wrote is really shed light and, and, and generate awareness. And we're continuing, my, well, my former team at Brookings is continuing to do this work that I, I, I know will be very impactful. And I'm hoping to stay engaged now that I moved here, but I'm, I'm very uh, excited about my teaching, but it's taking a lot of time. <laughs> That's really exciting, this whole idea of the badges and the accreditation, but getting back to end up to something that's really basic is that um, as you wrote, teachers seem to be losing their respect, their credibility, their position in society. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um... So this is about a book we published in 2018 called Profesión Profesor, um, so Profession Professor, and the subtitle is How the Profession Lost Its Prestige and How to Recover It. And we did a study that included several methods, including sort of an, a review of the history of the profession in the region, um, looking at archives of newspapers at the, you know, in their late 19th century, early 20th century, as well as looking at how the systems have evolved over time and what are some of the driving causes for this um, loss of prestige. And what we found in a nutshell is that there were kind of a couple of um, main reasons. One had to do with um, the commitment that our region made, most countries in our region, to expand access very quickly, massively to all citizens, right? To all youth um, and children. And that's something that you know, other regions of the world with our similar level of income had not done. Um, and I think it's it's laudable that Latin America decided to democratize education. Um, but that came at a cost in terms of how do you find the numbers of teachers that you needed um, to staff classrooms. And the countries responded in two ways, by lowering the standards um, for teachers to enter the profession and, and to enter teacher education programs. Um, also by, you know, keeping salaries relatively low because it's a big expenditure. And the third aspect is, you know, we are also a country that, uh, a region that in instituted um, double and triple shifts in the same school buildings because we couldn't afford to build the infrastructure and we're still struggling with some of that, right? Um, um, and so we lowered sort of the quality of education in some ways by um, having uh, anybody pretty much be able to teach and um, reducing the time in which students were with in school and by keeping salaries relatively low, although there were some other benefits. The other thing that happened concurrently was that 
in the past, um, teaching was a very attractive career for very talented women who had very few other options outside of the teaching profession. Um, so it was rare and, and not socially acceptable for women to sort of aspire to be medical doctors, lawyers, engineers. Um, but being a teacher was, was socially acceptable, particularly for single women um, who were um, normally secondary school graduates and who didn't necessarily want to get married um, and, and, and were, were talented. So as the opportunities for women, which is another really good thing, right? <laughs> so both the, the root causes are not necessarily married, but as opportunities of women outside of the uh, teaching profession became more widely available, then also the pool of talented females choosing to enter teaching um, fell. And so we have that kind of double whammy effect where um, we are not attracting sort of, and what I mean by talented is measures of, for example, academic achievement prior to entering, um, you know, the teacher education program. Um, and, and we have some evidence that, you know, teachers who come from like, high scoring, um, who are sort of from the top performing um, students in secondary education also tend to be better teachers later on. It's not the only explanatory variable. They need to get you know, training, et cetera, but, but it is a factor. And certainly, you know, students who have, or individuals who haven't mastered the skills that they were supposed to in secondary education um, are not gonna be very great teachers. So. So that, that's what we mean by talented teachers is, is, is um, and, and uh, to complement that, then we did a, a lot of research looking at efforts that different countries in our region have done to try and um, return or, or elevate the teaching profession. And, and that's also very interesting to see because for example, um, Peru uh, had uh, tried to raise, for example, the requirements to enter teaching teacher education programs. And when they did that, they saw a tremendous reduction in the pool of applicants into teacher training programs because not many of the historically, uh, you know, his, of the, the previous people who would have entered teaching were now eligible to enter teacher education programs. And as a result, they had a teacher shortage. So they had to kind of um, lower again the bar a little bit um, to try and attract the teachers they need. So we're always facing this issue of, you know, we do need a massive an a number of teachers because we are in many countries, the majority still having uh, a lot of young people in our population who need to be schooled. Um, that is changing, so that that's promising. Um, because that will enable systems to kind of be more selective on who can enter and also the other thing is that we noticed in our review of the of the research is that as the um, demands for more teachers became widely, there the programs that prepared them also uh, increased in number and lowered in quality, and so there were less effort in trying to uh, maintain the quality. It was costly, so there's lots of reasons why this has happened. Um, there's also, I mean, promising things, as I was mentioning, um, happening in Chile with the new uh, reform that recently passed um, on sort of the teacher statute that gives teachers um, the opportunity to um, get evaluated and progress um, both economically, but in terms of, of, of the functions they, they um, 
they carry out in schools and you can uh, continue to teach and become a master teacher and earn a very good salary in Chile if you achieve, if you do well in these evaluations. Um, and that also helps in, you know, one of the other factors that we have is normally that the more talented teachers get pulled out to be administrators and school principals. And so kind of differentiating those roles. Um, so Chile is another example of where um, there's interesting and it's too early to tell the impact it's going to have long term, but the efforts they made in the past informed this reform. So we can predict that it's going to also help improve um, the overall quality, if, if not a lot of other things change. <laughs> I think it's great to end on this note of optimism. Is there anything you else you would like to say about the future of education in Latin America? What I have seen, having worked in almost every country in the region, is that education improves when it's not just uh, depending on the leadership of the government to do so, but it's really a social demand. And so, you know, I think the role that um, journalists play, for example, in elevating the debate uh, and the quality of the conversations around education, um, parents, uh, non-governmental organizations, is crucial. Um, one of the things that is disappointing um, or troubling is that often uh, parents in the region are satisfied with the school options that their children are receiving. And yet we know from every measure of performance in international assessments that Latin American students are, are, are falling behind and have been stagnating in their, in their learning outcomes for a really long time. So I guess the last message is like we, it's crazy to continue doing what we've been doing because it, it's not fit for the needs of our students. It's not fit for the needs of our societies in this rapidly changing, you know, super complex world. And we need the leadership, but we need the social commitment and demand from the private sector and from all stakeholders, not just the government, because the government's change and we can't depend on them. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Emiliana Vegas. She's a professor of practice at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Her research and practice focus on improving educational opportunity in developing countries. Thank you for being on Faculty Voices. Thank you for having me.